Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, capturing the fly fishing life, featuring in-depth conversation with fly fishers from all walks of life. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com, an online fly shop, your source for all things fly fishing. DamianAndy.com, featuring custom music by Damian Anderson. Find out more at D-A-M-I-O-N-A-N-D-Y.com. Broken Tippet Fly Company. For blog and fly fishing apparel, check out brokentippet.com. And Wait For It Films. For action-packed fly fishing videos and camera-related content, visit Wait For It Films on YouTube or at thewaitcreativeco.com. It, uh, it started off very short, kind of quick burst, you know, trips into the wilderness. And I think like a lot of people, I was a little apprehensive about wildlife safety, but I, I became more educated. I started to feel comfortable going deeper by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, I, and I don't know if it, as far as questions go, like I was just looking at, um, like some of the, the background questions that you had listed. And, you know, probably a big part of my story is, is one of my good friends, and when I, when I met my good friend who ironically, his name's Mark too. Okay. Um, he, uh, he, he was about, I don't know, 18, 19 years old. He was a cadet at the air force Academy right here in town. And he reached out to me a few times and he, he basically said, you know, Hey, I, I saw your page on Instagram. I'd love to go fish with you sometime. And slowly, but surely I realized he was a, you know, just a kind, um, you know, one of the good guys and he was, he was fishing for the right reasons and mm-hmm. he um, was exploring for the right reasons and he, he was treating nature appropriately. And uh, we became friends and I started to kind of share some of my, my sacred places with him. And he started to kind of share um, just his ability to conduct research and um, Intel and slowly, but surely we sort of worked as a team and we started to explore more and more and, um, you know, it wasn't just learning how to fly fish alpine. It was learning how to backpack. It was learning how to pack, you know, pack a bear bag. It was learning how to survive and, and, and how to exist with wilderness for like 10 days straight, things that I had never really fathomed before. And so he sort of taught me um, everything there is to know about backpacking. And we were able to kind of spread, um, you know, our reach a little bit further and we started going further into the wilderness and we started doing, you know, multi-night trips until eventually we were tackling, you know, 80 mile trips into remote, you know, grizzly country, you know, and just doing more far out there things. And, um, you know, my story in particular, right about the time that I, I met Mark, I was going through a tough divorce. Um, I was kind of learning how to cope with not having my kiddos half the time. And that kind of coincided with, you know, meeting him and having a lot more time on my hands and, um, you know, learning the ins and outs of backpacking. And, um, and, and, I, and I think once, if you've spent time in the wilderness, even if it's not, you know, that far away from a road, the, the kind of recharge that it supplies people is really a big message of what I want to share with people is like, hey, you've got to experience, um, you know, the outdoors and the recharge that it can offer you. Get ready for the 2023 fly fishing season with the Fly Crate. We have hundreds of trout, bass, panfish, and saltwater flies, ranging from the classic elk hair caddis to jigged Euro nymphs. Join thousands of other fly anglers who fish with the Fly Crate. Listeners of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast get 10% off their first order. Plus, receive free shipping on all U.S. orders over $45. Order today. Go to www.theflycrate.com and use the promo code FLYFISH97 to save 10%. Bringing the biggest names in hunting, fishing, and the outdoors together in one place. The BC Outdoors Show, March 24 to 26, 2023, at the Chilliwack Heritage Park in Chilliwack, British Columbia. Fly fishing, fly tying, outdoor gear, lodges, fly shops, rods, boats, RVs, and much more. See you there at the BC Outdoors Show, March 24th to 26th in Chilliwack, BC. 
You, you, you are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. We're really happy you're joining us this time around. We're going to spend a little time in the backcountry, things we love to do on this podcast, explore all things fly fishing. We're going to head to the beautiful state of Colorado, Colorado Springs, Colorado to be specific. We've got Russell Davey on the line. Now, Russell is an avid fly fisher, alpine enthusiast. He's also a coach, teacher, former national champion wrestler, and uh tight line underscore grappler i've seen some butte fish picks this guy's putting out there russell thanks so much for coming on the show today i really appreciate it yeah thank you for having me i appreciate it too i i wanted to take it back to your roots so um we were just having a little conversation before i kind of hit the record button but walk our listeners through your journey so when you first found fly fishing what did that look like Well, for me, it was one particular incident, and we talked a little bit about not blowing up spots um, before the podcast, but um, this is kind of one of those ones in Colorado that are are really famous, and um, I was wrestling at the time, and I was training at the Olympic Training Center, and I had a, a pretty catastrophic injury in the U.S. National Finals, and this was in 2007. And I found myself in 11 mile Canyon, which is, um, kind of my backyard here in Colorado Springs and, um, probably the more, one of the more famous local waters on the South Platte. And I had no idea really how to fly fish. I grew up in Ohio, uh, Ohio and Michigan, um, fishing for kind of warm water species, bass and bluegill, uh, walleye on the Maumee river. And so, um, you know, Colorado was a completely different world. Um, I was hanging out at a camp. I had just, um, dislocated my elbow and, and had, you know, multiple surgeries on it and I wasn't wrestling anytime soon. And so uh, I was hanging out and camping with some, some other athletes and a couple fishermen came up from the river and they were fly fishing and they had, you know, some trout on their stringer for dinner. And, um, I kind of watched them and, um, the next morning I, I made kind of a short hike down to the local shop and purchased a, I think about a $40 rod and reel and a couple dry fly caddis. And I went back to the same spot. I saw them catching them and I kind of tied the caddis on the best I knew how and floated it down. And, um, my first ever fish was like about a 16 inch rainbow. Wow. And immediately I, I, I knew that my entire life was uh, going to change quite a bit because it was probably one of the coolest things that had happened to me up until that point. And so um, I spent some time struggling over the next year in, in emulating that, that day um, on, on 11 mile Canyon um, was tough and it took a, you know, a steep learning curve to figure out how to fly fish with consistent cons- uh, success out here. But um, that was how I got started was um, 2007. Yeah. That, that caddis dry fly eat, and I think I can still close my eyes and think about it disappearing. It was pretty cool. You and I have just, just started chatting, but I, I, I'm already getting a sense that there's some healing kind of in this for you. It sounds like you're on the mend from some injuries from wrestling. Was Did you find the outdoors in that kind of first kind of uh, venture into fly fishing a little bit healing? I know that sounds cheesy, but I could I could see that kind of doing that. I mean, definitely. I, I think, you know, when you ask me kind of what is my message or do I have a, um, like a motive behind fly fishing, it, it's, it's definitely to show other people how much it can heal you, you know, in, in numerous ways. Um, for me, it's kind of found ways to sneak into my life when I probably needed it most. And um, during that injury, that was definitely one um, because passing the time by just, you know, doing rehab is really tough. And certainly it, it kind of played in, you know, when you're, when you're an athlete for a long, long time. And I wrestled for most of my life up until I was about 27. Um, I mean, it, it definitely allowed me to compete with myself still and to, you know, see if I could perform in tough situations and, and, and just see how much I could improve and how much I could grow. So there's definitely that aspect to it too, but I, I kind of, 
you know, spent some time away from fly fishing. I, I was coaching college wrestling for a number of years, um, you know, had some young children and it just sort of, um, you know, it, I would, I would get out once in a while, but it wasn't a, something I could really prioritize. And, um, and then about six years ago, I went through a, a tough spot where I went through a divorce, um, only having your kids half the time, you know, there's probably a lot of people that can really relate to that. That's not really the way you draw it up. Mm -hmm. Um, and so trying, trying to make the best of that situation again, here comes fly fishing and it, it really, um, it was really therapeutic. And instead of just kind of going down to the river and throwing a caddis, I, um, I started to, to move upwards in altitude and, uh, in elevation and, hmm. and start to explore more of the Rockies. And I, and I had more time on my hands, um, and w was able to do that. In fact, um, the first time I ever really explored Alpine, I had, I had gone up to a reservoir to, to meet a friend and his wife and they were cooking out and they were fishing for the day. And he actually came down from a hike with his dog and he, he looked at me and he said, Hey, I just hiked up to this lake above the reservoir and it's, you know, crystal clear blue and these huge red trout swimming around. And I looked at him and I was like, you've got to be like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. There's not huge red trout swimming around. So the next morning I hiked up there and, um, you know, I've been pretty spoiled over the years with my, my kind of my various experiences and, and, um, I had no clue how to, f to fish Alpine. And I think anybody that's tried, you can definitely have some successful days. You can also have some really tough days. And, mm -hmm. um, I, I tried every dry fly in my box cause that was really all I knew how to do at the time. And I threw a mosquito pattern and landed an 18 inch Colorado river native was my first ever Alpine fish, which is absolutely insane. And, um, and, and at that point I knew that my, my fly fishing journey had, was going to open up a whole new corridor and, um, you know, just started looking on maps and looking at, you know, blue circles and lakes that looked cool and starting to explore and just kind of throwing darts, um, at a map and, and seeing what would stick and, you know, throughout the process, finding some pretty cool fish. Oh, I love it. I mean, anybody that's fished or spent any time alpine wise fly fishing those fish are beautiful there's nothing like the colors of an alpine fish i believe that 100 percent. i i don't know why they're just prettier somehow yeah I, I don't um i don't disagree at all in fact i i go back and forth between some of the species and you know i'm torn between greenback cutthroat colorado river cutthroat rio grande cutthroat golden trout um, even some brook trout species are really impressive and there's some between as well. And I, I'm not even sure which one of those I like the most. Um, I think probably one of the coolest things is I think, um, a lot of those species, each fish kind of has a very unique personality to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fair comment. So if you had to look back kind of you know, the start of your fly fishing journey to now. I, I love to talk influences. Um, you alluded to a good buddy that kind of got you going, but if you had to kind of name some names, who would you cite as influences on your journey so far? Well, like, um, you know, to just drop a couple names of influences, obviously my friend Mark and, you know, on, on Instagram, he's, his hashtag is at Alpine Fly Guy. Um, so we obviously have some obvious connections with our, our passions. Um, the big one for us was, um, a guy named, um, Tyler Eden and, um, he, um, you know, he, he kind of did all of this Alpine stuff, um, a long time before, like we could even really fathom it. And so, you know, we spent a lot of times, um, sort of staring at his, um, page and kind of drooling over his picks and, um, you know, Tyler, Tyler, um, I would say was probably the, probably the biggest motivation for Mark and I, um, to, to push it to the new, the next level. And, um, you know, if you get bored, he, he kind of puts his pictures up and takes them down periodically, but, 
Um, his hashtag is at Colorado Natives, C-O Natives. And, um, you know, Tyler um, really, I think, was the pioneer of what I'm really, really passionate about. And so I'd like to say that there were a lot of motivators, but it was sort of him. Um, if any, if anybody's ever written or excuse me, read literature on Alpine, they've probably heard of, of Rich Ossoff. Um, he, um, he's written some books that, um, really were kind of the Bible of Alpine and the Rockies and, um, even dating back is, you know, to some, some of the early eighties when, when I don't think any of this stuff had really even been, um, searched at all. So, Probably between Rich and Tyler and my friend Mark, I think those are some pretty cool influences, and I I would mm-hmm. definitely, um, you know, hope that in some way, shape, or form, there's you know that's my main motivation in posting these amazing fishes to get other people off the couch, um, maybe let it kind of turn their life into a new direction like it has mine, and you know, in turn, it's it's a like you said, it's a heck of a reward to to work hard and and, and get into some remote spots in the mountains. Yeah, I love it. Love it. Beautiful places, beautiful fish. Um, I, I want to take some time, Russell, to get to know you a little bit day to day. You ready for a few questions that um, don't necessarily have a lot to do with fishing? Sure. And this one might be tough for you because I don't know how much driving you're doing. Sounds like you're doing a lot of hiking, a lot of walking. But um, <laughs> when it comes to music and you're headed in the truck somewhere to chase some some trout up high, what's playing on the stereo? Well, it, it kind of depends. Like sometimes I listen to nothing because if you're a parent and you're a teacher, I think you can relate that there's never silence in your life. But a lot of times on the trail, if I'm like hitting the trail in my Jeep, I'm a big Neil Young fan. So I, I jam out to a lot of Neil Young. Um, and he just kind of puts me in the right mindset to to get ready to, to fish hard for sure. Right on. What about patterns? Like you, you mentioned you kind of started out with the dries, but now that you've been doing this a while and you're on, say, your favorite alpine stretch or, or, or one of them, what what are you throwing? Like what are you reaching for more often than not? Well, there's there's definitely some patterns that I've created throughout time, um, and there's some patterns that I, I kind of keep reserved just because good friends share them with me and I know they don't want me to talk about them. But um, generally speaking... You know, when you're fishing alpine, I don't care where you are, there's almost always water. Um, so throwing a balanced leech is really a, a good move. Um, usually I'll trail it with some sort of scud, something bright, um, and then a coronamid pattern, and usually I'll kind of oversize it just if, you know, that'll kind of draw fish in from further distances. But a lot of times it's still water, so you're, you're bobber fishing or you're, you know, kind of, um, you know, stripping it or, um, kind of in between. So, um, but between those three patterns, I've, I'm usually running a leech, a scud, or a crown of it almost always. Yeah, that makes sense. So, when you're doing these alpine trips, do you take along, you know, a pack in float tube or U boat? Are you strictly doing the shore or the walk and wade? Like, what does that look like? I'm curious. That's so funny you ask because my friend Kelly, um, I, I brought him up on an alpine trip for the first time this year. And he was like, why don't you pack in a float tube? Um, I don't know. There's something that weirds me out. And I'm a big dude. I'm 6'6", six, six, you know, 260. And I sit really low in a float tube. So I just don't really enjoy it. Um, I don't enjoy the sets. I don't enjoy the fights. I don't enjoy the, the view. Um, so I, I don't I don't float tube at all. I always just kind of... I either wet wade if I have to, or I, um, or I do shore fish and I, I always bring an extra pair of tennis shoes and, mm-hmm. you know, quick dry pants and, um, yeah, I don't wear waders very often. So I just kind of roll with it. Yeah. Well, I, I do think not that those fish are easier to catch, but they're usually fished for less. Right. And, I think sometimes this, you know, if you go to a lake that's targeted a lot, the shores maybe not the be- best place. But if you got to work your butt off to get in there, chance chances are you got a shot. It, it's true, and and I feel like um, there's very few chances alpine wise, and, th- and they, there are some times where I, I will admit a, a guy in a float tube will roll up and outfish me, and I'm like, darn, I really wish I had a now. But ninety nine percent of the time, I feel pretty confident that I can get to where the fish are. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of these lakes are big. You know, lakes in Wyoming and Montana are enormous where, where you're walking two or three miles to is the circumference of the lake versus in Colorado. Sometimes you can walk around the whole lake in 10 minutes. So it kind of depends on the size of the lake, too. But a lot of the smaller lakes, you can cover a lot of the, the you know, the, the square footage of the lake mm-hmm. just with a good roll cast. So. Is there a place you go to to get your fix fly fishing when you're not out there? Like this time of year is a perfect example. So I don't know if you're at the tying bench, if you're on social media, but maybe a trout shop locally. Where do you get your fill of fishing when you're not out there? Man, well, this time of year is definitely a struggle because I'm I'm coaching multiple wrestling teams. I'm teaching. I'm working on my principal internship taking master's classes, I'm being dad. Um, but I believe it or not, you can fish for trout year round in Colorado. Um, we've got 20 tailwaters and about four or five of them are within about an hour or so of my house. And I, I don't frequent those places very often just because I don't, I feel like the, the controlled environments take a lot away from what fly fishing means to me. But in the winter I will suck it up and, and go to the tailwaters and I usually get out about once a month, maybe twice a month. But, um, you know, I just got into archery. So that has been a, a really cool outlet, too. And just really not being good at something, you know, and being able to relate to people that you see that are struggling when they first get going fly fishing. But um, overall, it seems like it's quite, um, you know, similar to alpine fly fishing. It's just obviously a little bit different focus. And, um, you know, I spend a lot of time, um, just trying to do fun stuff with my kids. Um, we do a lot of digging for, for minerals and crystals and, you know, pretty much whatever, um, we can do locally and trying to do stuff that, um, you know, on a teacher budget doesn't cost a lot of money. How many, how many kids you got? I have a uh, nine-year-old daughter and a soon to be seven-year-old son next week. Well, that's busy. That's busy. Yeah. So let's talk sports. I love talking sports on the show. So, and, and I know you're a huge sports guy, obviously you made a career out of, of wrestling. Now you're teaching coaching, but if you're pulling for your team, are they wearing orange and blue? Um, who are you going for? (laughs) Well, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, so it's a little bit of a touchy spot. Um, but I'm, I'm a big Browns fan in football and, um, you know, everybody in Ohio roots for the, the Buckeyes mostly in college football, so it's always kind of interesting to follow. They're always in the hunt of things. Um, I'm a big Cleveland Indians fan, um, and, you know, it was cool to watch um, the Cavs finally win a title with LeBron, um, although I'm sure a lot of people have an opinion on him. But growing up in Cleveland, there's not really much to do there. It's an industrial town. Um, there's some decent steelhead fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, but sports are a big part of the culture there. And, you know, if you, if you don't know who to root for and there's just two teams playing and one's from Cleveland, you might as well root for Cleveland because it probably means more to those people for sure. <laughs> I like it. Well, foot. Um, if you had to look at your journey so far when it comes specifically to fly fishing and chasing trout in beautiful places, what's the biggest takeaway? Like what, why do you do this? Do you think? You know, you get torn back and forth between like, am I doing this to catch cool fish or am I just, is that just the motivation to get up into these places? Um, you know, I've spent days at lakes just kind of meditating and not fishing at all. Um, I think there's a lot to be said about just being away from people. Uh, I think a big part of it for me is just getting off of screens. And I think the toxicity of just, you know, I mean, I know we are going to broadcast on apps, but, you know, just how addicted people are to technology. Um, I think this is such a healthy break. And so, you know, if, if somebody was really struggling with, um, not being able to detach from technology, what a, what a cool way to do it. I mean, the time to me is like a time warp up there and it just flies when you're in Alpine. It's like the days are over. It's like, what day is this day? Five, six, seven. <laughs> um, and you know, I think that it, there's just a, a big rejuvenation, 
I feel way healthier during the summer when I'm spending time at these places. And, um, I think, I think the health benefits overall are enormous. Yeah. Well, let's talk careers. Obviously you love what you do by the sounds of it and then trying to go further with it. But as far as jobs, what's the best gig you've had to date so far? Man, um, the gig I've got right now is pretty good. I mean, I teach at an awesome high school and I get to teach my favorite subjects. I teach mostly AP, European history, world history. Um, I get to coach my, my son in wrestling and I get to, you know, basically do what I love in the summers and spend quality time with my family. So it's, this is probably the best job I've ever had as far as just happiness. Um, Hmm. And a lot of people ask me why I don't guide. And, and I think, I think a big part of it is it, it just, it looks like such a grind, you know, from the outside looking in. And, um, I don't know if I would want to mix my favorite thing up with that. So yeah. I I'm, that. I'm, yeah. Hmm. What, what's the worst job you've had so far you're willing to talk about? Is there anything you did that you're like going, man, <laughs> I, I'm not doing that again. And, uh, I'm not looking back. <laughs> Well, like during my divorce about six years ago, I, uh, I was still teaching, I was still coaching, but I was also working in a, in, in the, in the, in the warehouse, just the, the management was so rude. You know, they kind of knew that I was going through a rough spot. They kind of knew that I was, um, you know, working this job cause I had to, to pay for <laughs> lawyer fees and stuff. And, um, I've never quit anything in my life ever, like never in my life ever. Like, I mean, it's just kind of, you know, just the way that few people influenced me, like, Hey, you just finish things through no matter how hard it is. But yeah. uh, we had a semi semi show up and it was about 10 PM and, you know, with the crew we had with all my help and I'm again, a big dude. Um, we would have probably been there till one or two in the morning unloading this truck and, uh, my my boss was just giving me a hard time and made some comment about teaching about how hard how much harder it was to work at the warehouse than teaching and how you know how big of a joke teaching was and I was like yeah you're right I was like teaching is so much easier I just can't do this it's too hard and I just quit right on the spot <laughs> and uh, I was like you know have fun with the semi I bet you'll be out of here by six seven a.m. you know I won't let the door hit me in the rear and I just walked and. Um, and they, you know, she looked at me like I was crazy, but and you do have to hold the line at some point and, and have respect for yourself. Right. Yeah. Oh, I've been there. Everyone's got a tipping point. And once you hit it, it's like, yeah, okay, this is, that's, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's crazy. I love it though. That's a great story. And I think I, I love talking to people that have had diverse careers and, and just kind of like what you liked about, and, and I always say this on the show, like you, you, if you get around a good team, you can pretty much do the crappiest job on the planet, but it still can be fun. You know, you can still get something out of it, but yeah, it, it's so true. And like, I've been, I've been spending a lot of time studying, you know, leadership and how to run a school and be a, you know, to be a quality leader as a principal. And a lot of it is the team you build and the, the time you spend with people and the outlook, you, you know. Uh, if you got to do things that you don't necessarily want to do it at later parts of the day, you know, you got to have the right perspective and, and being around good people certainly helps. Yeah. Yeah. So true. We've got Russell Davey on the line out of Colorado Springs, Colorado, avid fly fisher, alpine enthusiast, national champion wrestler at, uh, at one point, And that's still such a big part of his life. Coach, teacher, Russell, what did wrestling do for you? I would imagine there's a lot of kind of discipline, teamwork. Like, what, what did wrestling, the world of wrestling, bring into your world? And what does it bring, I guess? You're still doing it, really. Yeah, I mean, I haven't wrestled since I was 27, and I'm, I'm 41 now. But, I, I mean, I've coached in the Olympic trials. I've coached in the NCAA finals. I've coached state champions. Um, now I mostly coach in middle school. And uh, we're actually starting up our season tomorrow, and um, you know we're we've had a lot of success. It's a lot of fun to coach at some of these levels. You know, I, I was just actually talking to a parent today um, about you know the importance of wrestling. Wrestling teaches you how to do things you don't want to do when you don't want to do them, and I think that is 
such a valuable lesson in life. And, you know, when you work hard and nothing's guaranteed and you got to kind of really put a lot of effort into something, that's something that I feel like in today's world, a lot is lost. Like there's a lot of instant gratification. And so, um, you know, if we can, you know, put some effort behind something and, and work towards something, it, I think there's a lot of really good um, values that come out of that. And so wrestling for me, it taught me a lot of self-confidence, you know, when you can control your body and your you know, kinesthetics and awareness, and you're able to, you know, develop your strength and athleticism and agility, it gives you a ton of confidence in other areas of your world. And, um, it gives you a support system of people that are looking out for you and holding you to, to standards, you know, diet, discipline, working out. And so I think, you know, sports play a, pivotal role in, in, in kiddos and their upbringing. And so it, it definitely molded who I am. Hmm. And, um, I, I was really fortunate. That's what brought me to Colorado Springs. I, I was a resident at the Olympic training center, um, got to travel all over the world, um, to some really cool places. Wish I would have fly fished in some of them, but didn't have time back then. And, um, you know, just some really cool people and really awesome experiences. Which, um, which college were you at? Um, I did my undergrad at Cleveland State. Um, nowadays, they're in the MAC. Um, yeah. Back then, it was um, a different conference. It was it was more like the Big East. Um, but yeah, they just um, actually had a couple wins this past weekend over a couple MAC opponents, and um, their their head coach, Coach Moore, was around when um, I was there uh, wrestling. But he wrestled. Um, in, in college at Penn state. So he um, is doing a nice job there. And it's uh you know, wrestling is a cool sport. It's really blue collar, but yeah. um, again, it's, it, I think it, it, it ends up showing up for you in other parts of life. It really does. When, when did you kind of figure you wanted to get into teaching? When did you get that kind of bug? Um, you know, I, when I, when I first got done competing in wrestling, I had I had taught for one year right out of college. I had kind of taken over for a mentor teacher during my practicum and student teaching, and it was okay, but I was only a couple of years older than the seniors I was teaching, and so it was just hard with the age gap being so close. And so when I went off and wrestled for a few more years and came back, um, I decided to give it a try, and I was coaching college wrestling and then, and then teaching high school and it was a good kind of combo. And, um, yeah, I was lucky to have a couple of really great, um, mentor teachers in a small town in, in Wisconsin called McGuanago. Um, and they really taught me how to teach kind of on the fly. And, you know, I, I had been away from it from a few years, but I think when you spend time around that age group of kids, high school kids, um, it is, it is a special age. They are challenging, but it's also a lot of fun to have some really, you know, um, deep uh, conversations with them and, and try to help kind of mold them and guide them through that tough part of life. I, I really think that's one of the most important jobs anybody on the planet can do. Like I really do when I, you look back and you think about kind of, you know, at the time you may not have realized it, but those little things that you get from outside the home, if it's from the right people, can go so far. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. And I, you know what? There is, it amazes me how many fly fishers I've had on this show that are also teachers. Um, it seems to be a, a very common denominator there. Hmm. Well, I, I think we're very fortunate. You know, we, we have 10, 11, 12 weeks off during the prime fly fishing oh, of the whole year. Um, yeah. Fair. You know, it's, 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 a lot of people ask me, they're like, where have you learned how to fly fish so well? I'm like, it's not really that I fly fish probably much better than you. It's just that I have a lot more time off than you during the summer. So, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's definitely the truth. I kind of forgot about that. Good one. Um, yeah, so true. My dad was a teacher, so, uh, that was when he worked on his golf game. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, good stuff. Um, I, I want to get to know your dream day. So Paint us a picture, Russell, of, you know, your perfect alpine setting. Like, who are you hanging out with? What kind of water are you fishing? What kind of trout are you throwing flies at? And, you know, is there something warm or cold to drink? Just get, <laughs> paint us a picture. 
<laughs> when I read that question, I started laughing because there's no cold drinks where I go unless you stick them like in an iceberg or something. Um, but you could do that. You know, you could definitely make yourself something and, and put it in a, um, you know, snow drift somewhere. You know what? Like instead of painting a picture, I can just tell you a perfect day because I, I think an alpine fly fisherman, like I, I think basically our dream is to come across a handful of perfect days. Like that is the the goal for the entire summer is you just need a couple perfect days to get you through, um, you know, days like today, like the, the gloomy winter days you, I can close my eyes and think back on. And, um, my best friend, um, she goes by Murr. Um, a, a couple years ago, I taught her how to fly fish. Um, we have been best friends. Um, our kids are best friends. We've be, we've been, you know, really, really close. She's kind of trusted me to take her into some really rad yet wild spots in the Rockies. And, um, her fly fishing game just really stepped it up this last year and she started to put it together. And we came across one of those ideal moments where we were in an Alpine Lake. I think we were 17, 18 miles from the, the vehicle. Um, we had struggled all day, like searching this huge Alpine Lake, looking for uh, golden trout. We finally came across them, and, and a lot of times golden trout are really strange. They're some of the most fickle of the trout species. They, they'll bunch up in one spot of the lake, and if you can't find them, they're like all in one spot, and they might just be hanging out eating plankton. It's, it's really There's no rhyme or reason other than maybe their communication. Um, so we came across this group, and it was your dream day where all you had to do was throw your rig out, let it sink. And if it didn't disappear on the drop, it was like one or two strips and there was going to be a beautiful 18 to 20 inch golden trout on the end of your line, every single cast for hours and hours and hours. And I caught a couple when we first walked up and then, um, I knew that her, you know, skill set and I knew that her ability, you know, was in tune that she could really capitalize. And so over the course of the next couple hours, um, I just watched her um, catch almost ev- uh, fish every single cast. And, and we're talking about gorgeous trophy golden trout. Um, and wow. the story is is absolutely 100% true. At one point, um, two spin cast guys came up and kind of kind of watched, um, tried, you know, to catch a couple. Um, d- didn't have any success over a couple hours and and, and left. Um, and, and then a, a park ranger came up that was in charge of the drainage and he was just kind of checking and he initially said he was going to check our license and he was watching Murr just rip golden trout every single cast. And he was like, Oh my goodness, there's golden trout. They're big. They're beautiful. You know, this is insane. And this is a ranger that's like, you know, on duty. And I looked at him and I was like, here, take my fly rod, catch one. You, you should like, I promise. Like, it's cool. And he fished with us for like about a half an hour and caught like two 19, 19 inches. Um, we took pictures for him. He's a, I'm not going to drop his name cause I don't want to get him in trouble, but he's an awesome guy. I've connected with him since. And, um, you know, the coolest thing about, um, you know, deep wilderness is you run into somebody's, you know, 17, 18 miles, you know, from, from the trailhead, they're probably going to be pretty cool people. So, oh, yeah. um, you know, that's, that's my perfect day. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to get a couple of those each summer over the last couple of summers. And I think a lot of times people look at, you know, the fish you catch or what you post on Instagram and they think like, wow, you're catching these fish all the time. And you're like, no, actually a lot of them were all in one day, you know, <laughs> on that perfect day when everything just lined up and everything was right. That sounds pretty good. I, I got to tell you, Russell, the one thing that I'm thinking in my brain, a lot of these alpine lakes I've been to have some nice fish, but when you're talking 19, 20 inch every other cast, I'm thinking that's bigger than the alpine. <laughs> that's bigger than the alpine fish I'm fishing for. Not to say I haven't seen them that big, but they're usually, you know, the winters are long and the open water season's short and they just don't usually get that big. But man, that sounds pretty good. Well, I mean, in, you know, back to my friend, Mark and him being a a critical part of my journey. I mean, it's our, our, most of our work, you know, that we put in comes in the winter studying, um, stocking reports, looking at maps, cracking people's backgrounds when they give it away on social media, 
um, you know, looking for the very best opportunities for each species. And, you know, he's been a godsend at literally finding, and, and I'll give myself some credit, but it's, it's definitely mostly his abilities to find a lot of these amazing spots where a lot of times, you know, I am hiking 20 miles each way, but I also, it's, it's not a, what's going to be there when I get there. It's, it's how well is it going to fish? And so a lot of work is put in on these trips behind the scenes, you know, months and months of prep for like a one week trip, just to make sure that you're going to put yourself in a good position where you're going to be able to find those fish because you might hike back into a drainage where there's, you know, 12 lakes and only one of them really has the fish you're looking for. Well, that, that intel, you know, there's so much you can do now to research. There's so many different ways we can go about it. But um, I'm curious if you've had a lot of issues with wildlife because when you're, you know, when you're talking 12, 15 miles from the nearest vehicle, chances are you're in the Rockies. Chances are you're going to run into either cougars or you're going to run into some grizzlies. You're going to run into something. Um any any issues so far with that, or has it been pretty good? Well, and, and to be really honest, there's there's been a couple trips where we're 32, 33 miles deep, um, which which changes your whole level of alertness, right? You break an ankle back there, it's search and rescue, big big deal. Um, so trying to be really smart when you're further than a you know half day trip in. Um, in my lifetime, and people actually think I lie when I say this, I've seen five mountain lions. Um, none of them have really, they've all been, you know, pretty brief encounters where there's been no aggression at all. Um, countless, you know, bears, black bears, countless moose. Um, some of them I've got named just because they're so territorial. I've ran into them several times. Um, just a couple grizzlies, but it's been pretty far distance and it's been, you know, in places where you would expect to see them. So you're, you're, you're very bare aware that, Hey, they, they, they are here. Um, and, and just knowing what to expect. And I think a lot of times, um, people think that you're going to be really far into a hike when you're going to encounter like a grizzly or, or, you know, some sort of wildlife. And I think you have to keep your head on a swivel in those kind of lower elevations more so than Alpine. I, I very seldom see too many animals up at these Alpine lakes. What but you, sometimes what are you doing with your food and that like so let's say you're out for four or five six days and you're you know you're you're pitching a tent are you hanging that from a tree or you, I, I always talk to people and they say the key is getting it away from you um whatever you're packing yeah i think so you know probably one of the coolest encounters we had with food was this summer um my friend mark and i were in wyoming and we came across an encounter with the Wolverine, which is almost unheard of. And he actually saw it visually. Um, I had it messing with our bear bag. And so we've kind of played with a couple different techniques, um, but just getting a bear bag, uh, making sure that you use it correctly. Um, and I don't usually, I, I have some friends that'll hoist it up way up high in the air. To be honest, as long as you get it tied around something solid, it's, it's going to do its job. Um, I've never had any issues. So I usually just, like I said, make sure I've got some good distance. Um, make sure that I put, don't put myself in between it and the water per se, you know, try to strategically put the food so that they'd have to walk past the food to get to me, um, to get to, to kind of put another barrier up to, and then just being aware, like it, it's hard on those days where you get stormed out and you're stuck in the tent all day, not to, you know, sit in there and eat and, you know, get food all over, but you know, just trying to be really conscientious and not, um, you know, put, put wildlife in a bad situation. What about gear? So, you know, with all this walking, I'm sure you're trying to go as light as possible. Um, what do you like to use for fly rods? Are we talking obviously pack rods of some type? Walk us through your gear a little bit. So I got to do a plug because one of my good, good friends, his name is uh, David Coons, K-U-N-Z, um, he lives in Utah. He wrote a book, the, uh, pragmatic backpacking. It's a super easy read goes over pretty much. Like if I had read this book before I went through all the trials and tribulations, it would have saved me a lot of headaches. Um, you know, I think some of the biggest things are like, you need some good trekking poles. Um, people don't, people think they can tough it out without trekking poles, but 
Um, and you can, but when you've got a big backpack that's heavy on your back, it's going to, you're going to feel a lot better when you get to the lake, if you're in good posture. Um, in, you know, I think the biggest thing is don't spend a fortune on gear and then eat McDonald's every night. Um, that's the contrast that I sort of laugh about is like, my friends will be like, well, I bought this sleeping bag that only weighs a pound and it costs $8,000 but I ate, you know, two Big Macs tonight. And it's like, well, <laughs> where's the trade-off, right? So um, David is an insane ultralight backpacker. Um, he did a 10-dayer with me, and um, he virtually brought nothing. <laughs> it's like, it looked like a day pack. I was like, where's all your stuff? And he had a tent and his, you know, basically his food. And it was crazy how how light he goes. But for, for like about a 10 to 12-dayer, I can get my pack under 60. Is that right? That's not bad. Yeah. So what what are you taking for food? Are you taking a lot of dehydrated kind of stuff? Or are you taking dried? Are you taking, like, I'm really curious what yeah. you're packing for, for, for grub. You know, it, I'm constantly, that's one thing that probably I'm more scientific about even more than my flies. Um, you know, when you start to look at caloric intake per weight, Various nuts are always going to have the most fat, the most calories, but I also don't really like eating them all that much when I'm up at Alpine. In fact, I don't feel like eating hardly anything. So um, I tend to go with like for meat, like a little bit of beef jerky, but then more like sausage and things that are not so dry. Um, As far as nuts go, I really like pistachios. They like they're easier to gut down. And if I get nuts, I will get something flavored, so it's a little bit easier to eat. Um, a lot of freeze-dried fruit. Um, sometimes these meals are okay, but they also have so many preservatives in them, they, they tend to kind of make me feel sick, too. Mm. Um, I usually take a bag of, um, like, the little small oranges, and those get me through the first couple days. Um, and it's nice to have some fresh fruit. I eat a lot of like bars and the, the, the different packets. Um, I like Z bars a lot. I figured those out when I started buying them for my kids. Uh, ramen is pretty good. If you bring your jet boil and, you know, just some of those different combos, sometimes tea and a little bit of coffee is good for the soul too. Oh, yeah. And probably, probably the biggest thing that I live off of is the, the noon or the nun tablets that you can get almost anywhere now. Um, those rehydrate me. And, you know, as long as I have my electrolytes up, I usually feel pretty good. What about water? So are you, are you packing any type of filtration system? Um, that, that's one thing I, I've struggled with in the past on a, a long, a, even just long hikes, you know, it's, it's hard to get to stay hydrated. What are you using for water? It, it is, you know, they've gotten, so good over the last few years um i've tried all of them i've done the hand pump that's a little bit of a workout for me and i'm usually tired when when i get to where i'm trying to go um i've seen a couple different systems but i think the one that i like the most are the gravity bags you basically scoop the bag full of water hang it up on like a tree branch that's got a stump and let it just kind of hang and it'll the tube will come down you can fill up a bottle in a couple minutes um, the key is just keeping the filters, you know, clean. So shaking them and not getting a lot of residue in the bag, but those work really bad. Uh, I'm sorry, those bags work really well. And then I usually take a light straw just for like those quick stops on creeks. When you cross something, just a quick fill up so that you don't hold everyone up. Hmm. Um, so a light straw and a gravity bag between those two works pretty well. And peanut butter crackers are another big score, too. I love peanut butter crackers as far as food. (laughs) Salty stuff, I think, is huge, yeah. Um, You're making me hungry. Um, I I I never eat that stuff. You know, the rest of the year, I never touch that stuff because I get so sick of it from the summer. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah, I get it. Um, Do you do a lot of uh, fly tying? Uh, Like, do you have a a vice? Is that something that you, you know, invest some time in? I do. Um, I don't really post much on it or talk too much about it just because um, most of my favorite patterns are kind of like I said, some of my friends' patterns. And so I have to, um, you know, be true to them and kind of keep them private. But um, I tie a lot of flies. A lot of it's out of um, necessity of cost, right? 
Um, I do think there does, there does come a point where you can get your cost down quite a bit on your flies where I'm maybe spending 40 cents on a fly instead of a dollar 50 or whatever it would be at the shop. Um, but also what I've learned over the years is on scientific levels, you start to learn what works best. Right. Mm-hmm. And you start to figure out the sizes and the colors and which particular patterns. And, you know, I'm working on a, a box right now and flies that I normally kind of shake my head at. I'm like, I'm not going to tie these, but I just wanted some colors that nobody knows how to tie. So, um, probably the coolest story I have is I think everybody has like a confidence fly. And my daughter, when she was about four, she was like, dad, you know, I want to, want to catch a, a fish on a, a, a fly that I've tied. And I'm like, okay, cool. So we sit down and we tie up a scud and she wanted to tie it up in pink. And we went down to the local pond, um, little lake in town, tried it and it worked really well. So I tied up a couple more and took them to like one of my favorite cutthroat lakes and it worked again. And now I tie up like four or five dozen of these flies and they're really, really simple. Um, I name them the Izzy after my daughter and I laugh that some of my coolest fish have been on these really simple scuds um, that I just basically use like a red pheasant tail, um, very simple pink ice dubbing and, you know, red thread. And for some reason, just because she invented it, it works like a charm. That's awesome. I love it. Do you spend a lot of time tying in the winter uh, between coaching and whatnot and, and, and your day job? Yeah, it's kind of insane. And I, you know, again, I, I tie flies for, you know, friends that come with me and people that come into town and, you know, you know, Murr has not learned how to tie flies. We got to get her on that at some point. Uh, but, you know, I probably tie, somewhere between 20 and 25 dozen each winter, um, maybe a little more. And I tie a lot of leeches alone. I probably tied 12 dozen leeches alone. Um, a lot of scuds, a lot of chronomids, um, a lot of just searching patterns, a lot of just really flashy stuff. Like a lot of Alpine stuff is some of the most bizarre flies seem to work stuff that I've picked up off of Rich Ostop. Um, stuff that I've learned from friends, but it's, um, you know, it's mostly big stuff. So you're not squinting. It's, it's mm-hmm. size 12, 14, 16, um, bugs. So they're, they're not too bad. And you feel like you actually tied something after you tie one. So that's cool too. Yeah. You're, you're making a little meat. I, I know that I struggle with that cause I'm tying, I'm doing a lot of still water myself and it's, you know, a lot of chronom and small, small nymphs. And, and I'll tell you without those three X cheaters, I'm, uh, my time's not very good. I need to really, really magnify it to see what's going on. (laughs) Well, I I tend to tie like a a couple dozen tailwater flies just for a specific trip. And, and then I'll, I'll tend to use them all on that trip. And I, I basically do not have a tailwater box. Like I can't keep one filled because I'm usually prioritizing all my Alpine stuff. And I'm trying to tie some of those size 22 blood midges or, um, you know, Manhattans are really popular in Colorado on the tailwaters or, um, like a purple jujubatis. Um, I feel like I'm going blind. So that, that's part of getting old, I guess too. But, um, that, that, those are tough. Yeah, no, no doubt. Right on. So have you started planning for the summer? Like you look ahead and go, okay, uh, here's where we got to last year. We want to revisit that or maybe <laughs> find some new honey holes. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I'm, I'm a very reflective person. And so I was already, I'm, I'm already planning for the next year while the, the year's already going on. Um, you know, just looking at timing and what would have been better had I waited a week or two on a certain location or not. And, um, just on scientific levels, it's getting better and better and better to the point where usually if somebody local runs into me at an Alpine Lake, they're like, sweet, I got the timing. And I'm like, yeah, you did. You know, <laughs> and, um, you know, but I, I'm, I'm kidding, but it's, um, you know, that is, that's a big part of Alpine is obviously the timing. Oh yeah. And, um, you know, some of these places, the windows are very, very small. 
So I'm, I'm constantly working on it. I think I've got a pretty good game plan. There's a couple spots where I'm like, um, we'll just kind of have to see how it goes. Usually there's always at least a surprise where um, my kind of smaller circle will find something new. And I'm, I'm super blessed to have, you know, a group of awesome friends that share stuff with me because I, I certainly can't find it by myself. Um, it takes everybody kind of working together, but um, I think I have a good plan. The, year, the, 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 the game plan is always to try to outdo last year. So that'll be really tough because last year was spectacular, but I think I've got a lineup that can do it. Well, judging by some of the picks you're putting up on uh, tight line underscore grappler, uh, you're doing something right. And uh, I, I really admire the fact that you kind of keep it under your hat, where you're going, where you're headed. And, uh, you know, that I think that's a big thing, no spot burning. Because conservation is obviously a big part of what you're doing here, too, I would assume, is, um, you know, leaving it how you found it and make it so that nobody even knew you were there, even. Yeah, it, it, we, we spend a lot of time... Um, trying to protect places right and i always try to think of each little lake is somebody's grandpa's favorite spot right and um up until a handful of years ago there was no way you could humanly possibly know of as many amazing alpine spots as you know some of some of the people i know know of and just because of technology social networking and circles and communication it's made it possible where you can figure out quite a bit um, you know, we've spent a lot of time and I, and I say, we, like my, my close circle of friends trying to make sure that, you know, we, we protect all these places to the max. And sometimes that means Photoshopping a background and, and people think that's insane when I tell them like, no, actually if I'm holding a fish, the background's probably Photoshopped because I'm not going to just give you the background and, and show you exactly where these fish live or else they won't live like that anymore. They won't be big like that anymore. And, um, and so going to as many lengths as we possibly can. In fact, I ran into a guy this summer who, um, gave me a hard time and he basically was like, you know, that fish that you posted last year had such and such lake in the background. And me and my friends spent a whole weekend up there and all we saw were little tiny dinks. And I was like, yeah, I know. I went up there with my kids and that's why I, I took some pictures of it so I, I wouldn't burn a background, you know, and, um, you know, and I think that's the advice I give to these young kids is there's a lot of kids that think that there's no way people will piece together where they're at, but it's, it's on some levels easier than you think it would be. And so, um, just being wise about protecting these places so they stay special, but at the same time, trying to motivate people to go on the treasure hunt that is Alpine, you know, fishing and, and I think that's kind of the magic balance. And and I get a lot of people that'll message me and they'll say, Hey, I'm coming to Colorado. Can you tell me where to go? And I'm like, I, I could, but I'm not going to tell you a great place. Um, why don't you tell me kind of like the exact area where you'd like to go? And then I'll point you in the right direction from there. And so I try to be kind to people and help them. But at the same time, um, these, these ecosystems are very delicate. I mean, some of these lakes only have a couple hundred fish in them. Um, it doesn't take a whole lot of mistreatment to really damage them. And so I think it's, it's, it's finding that balance and in, in making sure that you um, protect them, but also encourage people to utilize the resource and do it the right way. Well, th- thanks so much, Russell, for uh, coming on the show. I, I really appreciate what you're doing and, and how you're doing it. And um, thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate the opportunity um, and keep doing what you're doing. I think it's really cool. Um, people telling their story about their fly fishing journey and, um, you know, hopefully it will impact others to, to keep finding their own path too. Well said. We've been chatting tonight with Russell Davey, fly fisherman, alpine enthusiast, uh, national champion wrestler, coach, teacher out of Colorado Springs, Colorado, Look him up on Instagram, tightline underscore grappler. Thanks so much for joining us this time around. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, powered by theflycrate.com, your source for all things fly fishing. Wait for it films featuring fly fishing videos and camera-related content, custom music from Damian Anderson, and by BrokenTippet.com.